You're listening to episode 99. Warning. Warning. Religious people may get offended. Listening discretion is advised. Go to MyGraceNation.com for safe listening instructions. What's up, Grace Nation? And hello, Grace Nation, and welcome to the show. My name is the Reverend Dr. Smitty, a.k.a. the Reverend Dr. Jonathan G. Smith, pastor of Redeemer Church in Castleberry, Florida, and your online pastor. Blowing out the internet. iTunes. I heard iTunes is no longer around. I don't know what's going on there. I probably should check it anyways. And my goal, as always, is to raise ambassadors of grace by cultivating compassion, justice, and love. In your home, your neighborhood, and in the city. Woo! It's summertime, friends, and this is the very last episode uh, of the season, of the cycle that I go on. I'm going to be taking off a little hiatus here. I'm going to be taking a couple months off. I thought I would actually get to episode 100. Uh, I really did. I thought I was going to get there, um, but I didn't happen. It just didn't happen. In fact, i got to tell you, this has been one of the most difficult seasons um of, of life and uh, that could be just because I'm getting a little bit older and um, but anyhow not going to really dwell on that but uh, looking forward to kicking off uh, a new season in the fall with episode 100 that's going to be a lot of fun and um, I'm really thinking hard about that and the, the future of the show and uh, where am I going to be spending the rest uh, of my my shows like what am I going to spend the rest of my life Um, But for today, we're going to save all that for next year. And today we're going to focus on uh, summarizing essentially where we've come from in the last year, Um, summarizing my idea of being a side B ally. And uh, the way that I'm going to do it is I'm just simply going to answer some questions that I regularly receive. And this just sort of represents um, some of my thoughts as to where I am today. And I have to tell you that this is a journey a super journey that I've been on over the last five, six, seven years, um, actually going back probably seven or eight years as I've really uh, poured myself into this. And I, I'm going to tell you, I do not hold myself out to be an expert whatsoever. I'm just a guy, I'm a pastor, uh, really trying to uh, love people well and uh, understand what that means in the context of loving LGBT people as a uh, you know as a side B evangelical straight Christian and I think that that's important I think it's important to recognize and I always say that I put that out there because one of the things that I cannot do and I think that this is just intellectual honesty the intellectual honesty here is I cannot enter into another person's pain from the point of view having experienced that pain meaning that there are some some leaders in this that uh, I, I greatly admire, uh, Wesley Hill, um, Preston Sprinkle, others who have actually had the journey, who can say, I know what that's like, I know, and here's where I'm at. I think that's wonderful testimony. But I'm a Christian, and I'm a pastor, and um, I, I, I honestly will tell you that it's very difficult at times for me to enter into a person's pain when I haven't experienced it. I've experienced other types of pain, but I'm not going to tell you that I can experience this. But 
I am a dad. I am a husband. Uh, I am a pastor. Uh, I am a life coach. And uh, I am just a citizen of the U.S. And I'm seeing right now in our culture uh, widespread, widespread uh, emphasis on LGBT. And, and I think it's really remarkable because when uh, when I think about my life, you know, just as a 42-year-old, um, I remember a time when it was very rare that you would see a character on television who was openly gay. Now today, um, you know, uh, it, all of that has changed. In fact, a lot of the network television that I've that my wife Ivy and I we watch, um, you know, it always seems like there's a gay character in, in every show. In fact, um, it, it, it's so prominent now uh, that my wife and I sometimes look at this and, and remember. I, I think we're almost aghast at it, and and I think it's just because we're still shocked because we remember when there was a time that was not, all right? And um, and that's just how quickly our culture has changed and how significantly our attitudes as, a, as an American culture have shifted towards uh, LGBT identity. And I want to suggest to us something this morning uh, that that is both good and bad. And the reason why I say that is because um, it's both good in the sense that we now recognize this as a reality for people, it's bad because now it's it's being normalized in a way that may not be healthy. And that's what I'm trying to say, is that it may not be healthy for every single person because uh, sexual identity is a very complex situation. And not everybody's on the same journey. And I think that it's, um, and that's the big issue, is that not everybody is on the journey. And we have to realize and recognize that there are going to be very staunchly opposing ideas and views out there and um, there is no way to reconcile them. And that's part of being an American. And that's part of walking as a Christian in our Western culture. So on today's episode, um, what I want to do is just answer some questions. Answer questions that people have asked me. Uh, answer questions that I think are common to a lot of people that you may have been uh, wanting to ask. And I've just never bothered to, to cover it just because I've been you know, focusing on one particular area or another. And uh, I want to see if I can just go real general. And hey, listen, if there's questions that you have that I don't answer, certainly feel free to write. By the way, shout out to my uh, friend, Daniel. Daniel, thank you so much for listening. And uh, great having a conversation with you the other day. I really appreciate uh, how you are listening to the show. Thank you so much. And now, folks, let's get on the show today. Uh, as we get into the first part of some common questions. All right, and so here's a question that um, I'm frequently asked, and and I and I think that this is one of the most pressing questions today, right? And there is so much that is. Um, hanging on the answer to this question. And the answer is, is are people born gay? Are people born gay? Now, if there's any kind of question that has incredible ramifications, whether you answer this question positive or, or negative, yes or no, uh, it's this question, right? It's it's question of origins. It's question of identity. It's question of who am I? Where am I going? Why am I this way? It's a fundamental question of identity. If I was born gay, then how could God make this? And if I am born this way, how could God condemn it, right? And that's a difficult question to answer. And so what I want to do is I want to get into a little bit of the history of this question. 
Because believe it or not, this has been a question that's been around for decades, perhaps even longer than that. And there seems to be in some um, scripture verses that I see people quote occasionally, and I'm not even certain of their validity or not, uh, but there's some questions out there. Um, or there's, there's one little reference in scripture of the Gospels where Jesus says uh, some people are eunuchs, some people are made this way, some people choose this way, and some people are born this way. And a eunuch, of course, is somebody who does not have, has their genitalia removed, or perhaps wasn't born with it, etc. And Jesus seems to have uh, compassion on this group of people. And so the question is, is our people then born this way? And the answer is, is we don't really know the answer to this question. And there are very strong opinions on it on both sides. And I'm going to give you, I want to, I want to dive into a little bit of the research that I did for my doctoral work. And, um, because I was surprised, I was actually surprised at this question and you might be surprised too what I have to say. In the uh, philosophy of sexual identity, uh, now this is the kind of scholarly work that's done uh, at the very top in the high academic institutions, there is a philosophic debate that's occurring right now, and that debate is characterized by two words, essentialism versus constructionism. The essentialism, it says, as it sounds, essential that a person when or a gay person that they are it is essential to who they are and they are born this way right are we born gay yes it's essentially who i am on the other side is constructionist and the constructionist says no 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 that there was uh forces that in life where it was socially constructed perhaps biologically constructed which sounds a lot like uh the essentialism but it's not um that there is a uh, social, psychological, uh, we could just say social, psychological, and other forces perhaps that resulted in a person being gay. And interestingly enough, in some of the older literature that is out there, uh, and I'm talking about 90s now, for example, it's not that old, but still relatively old, um, scholars will say that, uh, that talk about these, uh, these issues that the majority of researchers and secular academics actually believe that uh, uh, human sexuality is socially constructed. And the part of the reason for that is simply because regardless of all the tests that have been done, genetic studies, twin studies, etc., there still hasn't been a lot of progress yet in really nailing down the answer to the why question. Why does this happen? It happens because of this. So we still don't know. There has not been that breakthrough research that has happened that says definitively, this is why this happens. What we actually have is a few studies that are that have been done and constructed. Some of them are poor studies. Some of them are, are fairly good studies. And the, and the research still seems inconclusive. For example, in gay, uh, gay males, um, there is the idea that uh, in one study, in one theory, that during uh, in utero, when uh, the baby is still in the mother's womb, that female hormones flood the uterus and shapes the brain uh, into such a way that when they are born, eventually they will be born gay. That's, that's one theory. Uh, the, the question, though, is how do you handle some of the other issues? Um, another one, a good example is this is uh, in transgender girls, for example, in their teenage years. There's a recent study that just came out 
that talked about the sudden onset of transgender dysphoria. And in that particular research, uh, it was chronicling young girls who for social reasons, um, through uh, social media, etc., cetera, um, began to experience gender dysphoria and changing their uh, their gender identity and their gender orientation uh, based upon what the researcher called, you know, was uh, social effects, okay? So, you know, there are, there's obviously a whole lot more complexity to this than we can possibly realize. And so when we just come out with questions that say, are people born gay? Um, and we say, yes, well, we're actually... Uh, jumping to a conclusion that may not be true. And I think that this really can come down to a good old-fashioned philosophic debate that's been occurring in human history forever, and that is determinism versus free will. And if you know anything about Christian theology or if you know anything about philosophy, one of the basic questions here that I'm I'm raising is, is everything that about our lives predetermined or do we have free will? And when you look at the debates that are taking place, I think that underlining a lot of our discussion boils down to a Christian determinism for those advocates who want to say they're born gay versus a Christian free will that says uh, homosexuality can be overcome. And if you were to ask any of those questions whether or not they are, you know, have thought through these ramifications, they would probably say no. But that's true. It, a lot of this, when you listen to the rhetoric that's that's available, the whole essentialism versus constructionism boils down to whether or not you believe in genetic predeterminism or you believe in social free will. And as a Christian, we know that the Bible puts limitations on human responsibility, so we don't have absolute free will. We also know that the Bible teaches that we were born into sin, and so we are automatically predisposed towards sin, all right? And so um, when we look at these questions, we can't honestly give you an answer that's definitively on either side. And so that's why I say this question, are you born gay? Are people born gay? I, you cannot just come out and say yes, and you also cannot just come out and say no. <clears throat> the, the phrase that I like to, to use is irreducible complexity. And, and that is to say that it really is um, a, a, a phenomenon that is so complex that we can't possibly give you a straight answer. So a very long answer to this question, but let me just take this one step further because on this show, for example, um, Bill Henson with Lead Them Home, he uh, came onto my show and he talked about the phenomenon of intersexuality. And with intersexuality, what you have is a person that is born with both sexes, hormones, gonads. Um, chromosomes, genitalia, etc., and um, sometimes for intersexual people, um, there will be a gender assignment that ends up being at odds with the dominant gender that they experience down the road. In other words, um, a doctor will make the assumption. They look at them. They say, "Well, this 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 um, baby looks mostly male, so we will give the gender assignment." 
of male and then uh, reduce or eliminate all the female genitalia. And then down the road, something happens and psychologically they're female, but biologically they are male. All right. And so that's where gender orientation arguments sometimes go. They look at intersexual people. Now, uh, the problem with this argument is to me, it sounds like a logical fallacy. And in, and the, the logical ar- argument that I'm thinking of is called an a fortori, uh, a fortori argument. And the a fortori argument it reasons from the lesser to the greater. In other words, what it says is because of this happened in this group, then it's possible that this is greater. And uh, I think that the problem that we run into with that is to say that the psychological phenomenon of of feeling female in an intersexual um, person who was born male with male genitalia and then applying that, say, to a gay man who was born essentially with everything regular. In other words, if we were to look at a close examination, there was nothing that uh, in- intersexual happening in that person saying that that explains why this uh, gay man uh, is attracted to other men is because he has a a female gen he has a female sexual attraction uh, I think that we got to be careful there and when I remember when Bill first made that comment I thought okay yeah that sounds reasonable but I think that the answer to that question is is that we need to be very careful when we use that, that we're not just looking for a, a justification to accept that people are born gay. Ultimately, it's an act of faith because since we don't know, we're simply assuming that it's true. And therefore, because we assume that it's true, we can then learn how to manage. Remember that so much of this, so much of this is just managing the dissonance that a person feels in their adult lives or in their teenage lives, right? Um, and that dissonance usually occurs where there is a conflict between faith and sexual attraction or gender orientation. All right. And usually that's where the dissonance occurs. So if you can, if you can reason that out a little bit by uh, taking certain things as true, i.e. I was born gay, then it might help you to manage it. And a lot of this is, I think, um, what happens with, with parents as well. Um, when a parent reached out to me just recently said, I believe my, my, my child was born gay. You know, I'm not going to challenge that because what that parent is telling me is to say, I need to believe that, that this is true so that I know how to love my son or daughter better so that I know how to manage the distance that they're experiencing in their lives so that I can help them cultivate a life that's going to lead towards congruence. And that's Mark Yarhouse's uh, big idea of congruence. People need to live within an identity that's going to be congruent. Now, one of the things that I say that is because when we ask this question about people being born gay, ultimately what what we're addressing is something that all of us need. And what all of us need is cognitive rest. So if we have dissonance, all right, which is that sort of agitated state in our brains where we have questions we can't get answers to that lead to life that is that is uh, disruptive or emotions that are disruptive, cognitive rest is the opposite. 
where my questions, uh, the answers to my questions are satisfied and I'm, I'm experiencing congruence in my life. And, and that's ultimately what um, people are looking for. But how they get there varies from person to person to person. So my personal opinion about the answer to this question is I, I believe that human sexuality appears to be irreducibly complex and um, I believe that sexual attraction and gender orientation are neither mutually exclusive, meaning that you, you know, they're not just two things that you can separate out and push away. I do think they're interrelated, but I'm not entirely certain how. And I also do believe that sexuality itself, um, that is sexual attraction itself, seems to be fluid. And that means, and by fluidity, I mean that it varies from degree to degree to degree and that it changes and that it morphs and and i and there is some validity to that in other words it's not hardened in uh, to our lives and i think that that all has to be taken into consideration when we're talking about a person when they ask this question you know am i born gay that also leads to the other question i've heard this question or actually i've heard uh this um, it's a slightly same question, but it's slightly different. And that is, does God make people gay? And this question, I think, um, this question is a very honest question. If you're gay and you believe that God made all of us, right? That he intended for all of us, that, that the purpose in our lives is, is, um, you know, that God, in other words, I knew you before um, you were uh, in your mother's womb. Uh, Jeremiah 1.5 has something similar to this. It says, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. This idea that God knew us before we actually even existed. And I don't want to go into the theology of that, but the logical uh, progression there is, well, if I'm gay and God knew me, then he must have predetermined that I'm gay, right? goes back to that same kind of dilemma. And my answer to that question is, I don't believe that God determined any of us to be who we are in the moment. What I believe is that God created in all of us the potential to be who he desired us to be. And along this journey of life, that we're, when we're born into this life, Psalms 51 says, I was born into sin, that the corrupting influence of sin, this powerful force that has completely distorted our reality, even affecting us biologically. In Protestant circles, we call it original sin. Um, that it has such a distortion on our lives that we can't possibly say that who we are today is exactly who God meant us to be. And instead, the journey of becoming like Christ and the promise that we'll have new bodies that is to say that that's what God intended us to be. So no, I don't believe that God uh, made anybody gay. I do believe that when uh, we are born into this world, that all of us experience these potentialities of sin that greatly affect us in unique ways. And that's why I'm coming back to this essentialism versus constructionism. We can't say that God, I was born this way and God made us. That's an essentialist argument. And neither can we say that um, God didn't know that we were going to go through this, right? Because then that would be a purely constructionist. The answer is, it's both. It's both. If 
God knew that we were going to go through this journey, but he didn't mean for this for all of us. What it means to me then is that for the person that is, you know, we'll just use the, we'll use the, the essentialist verse, uh, who is born gay, that there's a redemptive purpose down the road that we may not yet understand. And the journey between where they are and where they're going to be may be hard, it may be difficult, it may even seem unfair, but on the other side, we have to hold out that God's incredible redemptive plan is going to far outweigh the pain and the journey to get there. And I think that that's true for the whole world, right? I mean, the whole world, we have to believe that that is what we would say uh, in, in theological circles, eschatological, all right, or eschatology, but it's eschatologically true. In other words, we believe as Christians that we're moving to a better place, and we have to hold that out. Um, another good question here, and then we're going to take a quick break on the show here as we're moving forward we're already 25 minutes into the show um you know how do you respond to evangelicals who believe that gay marriage is okay and you know i'm just going to be very blunt about this i think they're making an argument from silence uh i really do believe they're making an argument from silence there's nothing in scripture that says that we can bless uh, ministers etc the church can um bless uh, same-sex unions um, or gay unions or gay marriage. There's just nothing in there that scripture that I can look at and say definitively, this is true. And in fact, if my hermeneutic of the resurrection is true, that I believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ, then I have to hold to that is true in other parts of the Bible as well. And you know, that is so terribly inconvenient I mean, it's so terribly inconvenient if you stop and think about that. I mean, I would love not to have to even deal with this. It would be a lot easier if God never even dealt with it at all. But an argument of silence essentially says that um, the Bible doesn't say anything about this, therefore it's permitted. And we could actually argue about a lot of things that when we look at the principles of Scripture, um, we, we honestly, no, no, I don't think that that's necessarily true. So, uh, I, I look at the evangelicals who want to move in that direction and I want to say, I think you've got some challenges here, uh, that are not going to line up because evangelicals insist on the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And well, if that's true, then, and that's how you're reading your Bible, then I don't think that you're reading your Bible, um, in a, in a similar way in the other areas. And so, anyways, that's a simple answer to a complex question, um, but that's how I respond. Right now, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to answer a few other questions. Hey there, this is Jonathan again, and perhaps you've noticed I'm pretty passionate about declaring and demonstrating the liberating power of Jesus Christ to an exhausted world. And one of the ways that I do this is by working with parents and church leaders on how to better love LGBTQ people and families in the local church. You know, unfortunately, the church doesn't have the best track record when it comes to loving LGBT plus people well. And as a result, sometimes they can feel rejected or marginalized 
from those who they really need the most, their families and congregations. But I have good news. It doesn't have to be this way. We can change the status quo. God's word gives guidelines and principles that pave a way forward for a gospel-centered approach to loving LGBTQ plus people and families. You know, I believe the message of the Bible is clear. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. But let's face it, sometimes conservative Christians struggle with how to live out this truth in everyday life. And as a result, there seems to be a lot of confusion on how to apply the gospel to our gay friends or family members. Well, to help meet this challenge, I've developed a program titled Remission, Cultivating Side B Allies in the Church. In this program, I teach individuals or groups how to better love LGBTQ plus people and families in the church without compromising your beliefs and without further marginalizing gay people. You know, it won't answer all the questions, but it will give you the tools needed to love gay people well. If you are interested in learning more, then please visit MyGraceNation.com to contact me, and I would love the opportunity to chat. Again, that's MyGraceNation.com. And now here on part two, uh, here on part two, we're going to be talking, uh, continuing this Q&A format. Just a few more questions. Got four more questions here uh, that get uh, asked occasionally. And uh, the next question that I'm looking at is, what do you think about people who claim they abandoned homosexuality and are now free? This is the SSA movement. You know, I really do admire many of these people. I'm going to say this right up front, you know, and, and I, I hate to say this because uh, and I want to just confess this, that I came out with an episode a while back where I really came down hard on the SSA movement. And I think that's because at that time I was reacting to some of the criticisms. But I, as I've thought about the SSA movement, um, and you have to remember something, the SSA movement was the definitive evangelical answer uh, to the gay dilemma uh, in, you know, among you know, for probably four decades. It was started back in the 80s and it really began to uh, fizzle out about 10 years ago um, at the disbandment of uh, Exodus International. And since then, you know, I, there's there's a new group that's come up, but it struggled to try to, I think, find its identity. And, and my, big, my big challenge with them is that then instead of moving towards Christ and developing a faith identity among gay Christians, instead what they really want to do is move people from being homosexuals to heterosexuals. And so they really emphasize uh, in some circles heterosexuality, that God will make you a heterosexual. And um, I don't see that in scripture. I just don't. Um, What I see is an emphasis on Christ and being Christ-like. And to hold heterosexuality up to a level, um, I, I don't think that's healthy. And the reason why I say that is because um, heterosexuality itself is is uh, impacted by sin. All you have to do is to look at uh, Genesis, and almost immediately after um, 
after uh, the fall of man, you begin to see breakdown in heterosexuality, breakdown in terms of men dominating women, uh, men having multiple partners, um, all sorts of things. You see a very uh, salacious breakdown of heterosexuality. So um, I think that there's a problem there. Plus, also, when I deal with uh, a lot of heterosexual men, uh, particularly uh, in, in the realm of sex addicts and pornography, um, you know, heterosexual men struggle with lust uh, just as equally as gay men. And so I find it uh, questionable there when um, the SSA movement holds heterosexuality up. Now, um, there has there was a, a recent march in Washington. 200 people marched there. I believe they called it the Freedom March. And it was 200 SSA people who declared their freedom from homosexuality. And I support them. I think that's great. I think that they have found a way, an identity that works for them. I think the mistake is normalizing that to everybody else. And you'll notice that um, that's the mistake that I keep talking about, right? Because I keep coming back to this idea of irreducible complexity. And I do also think that when um, you you say that I've exchanged homosexuality for Christianity, what that does is it actually elevates homosexuality as a faith. And it's not a faith. Um, there's certain aspects of it that are faith, but uh, it's not a faith. It's not a fair comparison, I think. And so that's just my mistake, or, or that's my, uh, not my mistake, that's my uh, response to this question. Um, but I got to tell you, I've met some SSA people and I absolutely love them. I love their ministry. I love what they're doing. Uh, I, uh, I know a guy who marched in that and I know that he's helped a lot of people make a similar journey as his. And I think that's wonderful. Another question that I get sometimes, uh, is it a sin to be gay? And my answer is maybe. And you say, well, wait a minute, Jonathan. And you know, hear me out. Okay. Hear me out. Uh, I think it all depends on how you're using the word gay. Again, someone has really impacted me and my thinking on this is Wesley Hill uh, and several others um, like him. You know, they're using the word gay descriptively. In other words, they're describing a phenomenon that's inside of them. And I use the word descript straight descriptively to describe a phenomenon that's inside of me, uh, meaning my incredible attraction to my wife, who I absolutely love and adore and think she's so beautiful, right? It, it, you know, I don't identify myself. I don't go around saying I'm a straight Christian. Uh, I just call myself a Christian. But for some people, when they append the word gay to Christian, they're not talking about a sin that they're attaching to Christianity. They're talking about a phenomenon that is shaping their Christianity. Now, what do I mean by that? I think that this is a really important distinction. Um, there are all kinds of Christians out there. I'm an Anglican. And my Anglican beliefs and practices shape the kind of Christian that I am. There are gay Christians, and what they're talking about is how do they um, bring their faith in conformity with their, their sexual identity that seems to be completely at odds with what their faith teaches. And so I think that that's a fair description. That's why I do think that side B ally is so crucial for Christians who say that um, I am gay uh, but I am choosing a life of celibacy, and I'm still learning to live within the phenomenon of my sexual identity, my sexual attraction, as well as my Christian faith, and I'm placing my faith as the normative over my sexual identity, 
and I'm trying to live in that, I think we need as as straight Christians, straight evangelical Christians, side B, straight evangelical Christians, we need to rally around our brothers and sisters who are falling to that category and prop them up and lift them up um, because they are my heroes. They are daring to do something and defy a culture that is trying to push them towards the very opposite. And um, I think that that's what's so crucial. So to be an ally is a positive view, right? That's that's what I think. So, um, but if you're using the word in a different way, meaning fundamentally as who you are ontologically, and so therefore you're wanting to live into gay, all right? Meaning that you're saying, I'm going to um, pursue this identity as my entire person and therefore justify having, uh, you know, a sexual relationship with, uh, someone that falls within that another gay person, et cetera, you know, I think that's wrong. And then I would say, yes, it is. All right. So the so the word gay itself doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means. And I think it all depends on how it's being used for a particular person. Um, another question that was just recently uh, brought to me was a family in my church as a teenager now coming out, um, transgender teenager. And as a pastor, what should I do? Um, this is probably one of the most um, common that I'm hearing about right now. And I think it's because there's a lot of emphasis on transgender people. And my simple answer to this is two things. One, recognize that gender dysphoria is a very real phenomenon. It's incredibly debilitating and it requires massive amounts of grace and um, I think that we have to be so careful on being certain, being certain that we do not react to the transgender person who is uh, going through this. Uh, having uh, counseled uh, parents who have gone through this, um, and by the way, when I use the word counsel, I'm talking about pastoral counsel. I'm not talking about clinical counseling. I'm just simply talking about soul care. When I've walked with parents through this and individuals, the one thing that I can tell you that I have observed is that it is really hard, really, really hard and difficult. And so I want to suggest that you have to keep the long view in mind, and that is to encourage faith identity, coming back to identity in Christ. Um, that's so important. And then the last question is, how do I love my gay son or daughter and still be a Christian? I'm going to close with this question because I think it comes to the very heart of everything that I do uh, in terms of this area of focus. And that is, you know, um, loving your gay kids is not opposed to scripture and it's not opposed to Christ. In fact, loving your gay kids is perhaps the greatest, um, the greatest evangelistic tool that you possibly have. And you say, well, what scripture do you have to back that up? And the answer is, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Your children, our children as a parent, they are still our neighbors. And we want to raise them up right in the faith. But at some point, our children are no longer our responsibilities. At some point, they become ultimately on their own as they grow and mature and they will go down directions um, presumably that are different than ours and so at the very best 
God has given us responsibilities when they're young, and at the very at, at, at the very worst, right? When we talk about the worst, the best of very worst, uh, and, and this is hard for us as parents that we are given a short amount of time as ultimately their caretakers, but ultimately God the Father is the one that leads them on in their journey in life. And so what I would suggest is that loving your gay kids is all based upon loving your neighbor as yourself. And I think that we've forgotten that. I think that we as as Christians have forgotten that our children are our neighbors, our cousins are our neighbors, our brother-in-laws are our neighbors, our sister-in-laws are our neighbors, our, our gay uncles are our neighbors, and we're called to love them. We're called to go the extra mile for them. Jesus' standards for loving people are so far higher than we ever can possibly attain, and yet that's what God has called us to do. So I want to say quite the opposite. Loving your gay kids is the most important act of evangelism you will ever do. And that's true not only for Christian parents, but for all Christians. I mean, to be a side B ally means taking seriously the great commandment and the great commission. It means being willing to walk side by side with a person who's still learning what it means to trust the Lord Jesus Christ with all of their heart, soul, and mind. And it means being an ambassador of love and grace in a world that is dead set against those two putting together. And I want to say, friends, as we conclude the season, that that's what all of this is about. It's about the love and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, wherever you are, I pray this prayer for you. Now, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, Be with us all now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to Grace on Fire, a Verve Creative production. For show notes, links, and more, please visit MyGraceNation.com.